Well, good afternoon, church. I hope, uh, hope you can all can hear me all right. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be continuing through Matthew. We'll be in verses 6 through 16. So, Matthew chapter 6, 26, verses 6 through 16. Now, before we read it, I want to point something out just to help you to understand this chapter a little bit better. What's happening in this chapter, in the beginning of it at least, is a series of scenes that jump back and forth along a timeline, which can be why it's a little bit hard to follow. The supper that we'll soon read about in verses 6 through 13 took place on Saturday, the day before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we read about back in, I believe it was Matthew 22, 22 and 23, the triumphal entry in the Olivet Discourse. And so we don't know exactly when the leaders took counsel together to plot the Lord's death, but we do know it happened before Judas went to offer his betrayal. And rather than arrange things chronologically, rather than arrange things in order that they happen, the Bible presents it to us in almost a kind of, of, uh, of a style of Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, one of the things you'll see over and over again is uh, repetition, but not just repetition, but contrast, right? Uh, you'll see something like the righteous will inherit the land, the wicked will be driven away from the land. And you have a contrast between what the righteous will do and what will happen to the wicked. Well, you see this happening in the opening of Matthew chapter 26. For example, we don't know, again, when the council of the chief priests and elders in verses 3, 4, and 5 took place. But what we see in the opening verses, verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, is the contrast between Jesus assuring the disciples His death is imminent, He is going to die and be crucified in two days, and their resistance to doing it during the festival. In our passage this afternoon, there is another contrast. You have Mary on the one hand and her lavish pouring out of precious ointment on Christ. And then on the other hand, the betrayal of Judas, selling out the Savior. You could title this sermon, Love and Betrayal, because that's what's being contrasted here. And you see in it what it means to love the Lord and why Judas would betray Him. So keep that in mind as we read through verses 6 through 16 of Matthew chapter 26. So now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to... Uh, sorry, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, 
What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, it is amazing how you can be so loved and so hated. No one is divisive in history as you have been. And Lord, you said so yourself. You came to bring a sword and to separate. And Lord, you separate the world into light and darkness and the sheep from the goats. And even in your own life, you saw this separation. Lord, I pray that you would help us here this afternoon to know what side we are on. Lord, do we love you? Do we love you? I pray that you would show us where our hearts are aimed at this afternoon, whether they are focused on you, on the things of the world, whether they are aimless, show us where they are so that they could be focused on the right place, on you, that we would be like Mary and not like Judas. Help us, God, for you alone know the heart perfectly. You hold it in your hand. You can turn it whatever way you want, reveal whatever you will. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today to see beautiful things in your word. And not just beautiful things, but true things. Things that touch the very center of our soul and of our being. That we would be different people leaving this place and entered in. You alone can do this, God. You alone. And so it's to you we look expectantly with our hearts open before you to receive the bread of life. Help us, God. In your name we pray. Amen. This passage begins with Jesus and his disciples enjoying a, a dinner or supper with what really is a remarkable family. Few families feature as prominently in the Gospels as this one. Matthew spares the details, but John, in John chapter 12, in his Gospel, he fills the details in. He tells us that Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Matthew says this is also the home of Simon the leper, then it's safe to conclude that Simon is either the eldest brother or even their father. And we don't know why Matthew doesn't mention Mary and Martha or Lazarus. Some speculate that it was to protect them from persecution and where John's gospel, if you're aware, it was written much later than all of the other ones and the time of persecution, the danger may have passed and so John feels comfortable writing their names down. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that he's there at their house, and Simon 
is a leper, or used to be, until he was healed by Jesus. You say, well, where's that in the text? Well, it's not, but look, there was no cure for leprosy in those days. The only cure for leprosy was to be healed by Jesus, and we know that the man was cured, otherwise no one would be eating at his house. Jesus healed him, Simon, and out of gratitude, he had Jesus stay with him for a meal and apparently stay there regularly. And it would have been a large meal. There could have been 20 or 30 people present. Simon was there. His whole family was there. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, all there along with Jesus and his 12 disciples, certainly a, a few others. It's, a, it's an important occasion. So much so that Matthew and Mark and John all write it down for us. And they give it emphasis because, listen, in a way, this occasion begins a spiritual descent. This is probably the last joyful celebratory experience the Lord has on this earth while He's here. This is the last joyful occasion He will experience before His death. This anointing may be the last act of kindness that He receives before He Himself is poured out as an offering from the uh, on the cross. And so here, this is the height from which we begin the journey to the tomb. There's one more reason why the Gospels include this. They include it because this anointing of Jesus is also the singular event that leads to His crucifixion. And we know that God had ordained it from times past, but this event is what puts those wheels really into motion. And as we make our way downward through this text, and it does go downward, I want you to give your attention to three points. One, nothing given to Christ is ever wasted. Two, the necessity of love in every good work. And then three, the thorns of betrayal. Nothing given to Christ is ever wasted. The necessity of love in every good work. And the thorns of betrayal. Number one, nothing done for Christ is wasted. We see this in the love that Mary shows to Christ. If anything, we can call it a most lavish love. See, there were many customs and rituals in that day associated with hospitality. And one thing that was customary, if you had people over to your house and you were the host, you would take a few drops of oil and anoint your guests. If anything, just to get the, the scent of the sweet-smelling oil into the air. That was usually just a few drops. Certainly not like this. This is above and beyond what Mary does. Anything that could be reasonably expected. But Jesus tells us in verse 12, Mary hasn't done this as the customary anointing of a guest. This is done specifically to prepare Jesus' body for burial. I used to read this passage and think that Mary was just you know, doing this out of love. You know, she had a lot of love for Jesus. She had no idea that she was actually preparing Jesus for death. She just did it. Thought it would be a good thing to do. And then I remembered Luke chapter 10. You might remember the passage, Luke 10, 38 through 42. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 10, 38 through 42. Jesus is at Mary, 
in Martha's place sometime in the past. And Martha, you remember, she's working hard. She's trying to get the meal ready. And what's Mary doing? She's sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha's flustered. She wants help. And so she looks at Jesus and she tells him, get that lazy sister of mine to come out here and help me. You remember Jesus' answer? Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. Only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen it, and it will not be taken away from her. He tells her, hearing the words of God is more important and better than service. Serving is good. We ought to be concerned about what we do. But Jesus tells Martha what Mary is doing is better than what you are doing. Jesus says that. It's not an interpretation of the text. It is the text. And as we'll see, the effect that that learning had on Mary actually enables Mary to serve better than Martha. She's sitting at the feet of Christ, and that's better than serving Him. She is worshiping. She's learning. She's, she's devoting her mental strength to uh, understand what the Lord is saying. And it leads to a more profound and valuable service, a, a right service, as we'll soon see. A everyone at the meal on this night had their scriptural their, their knowledge of what Jesus had been saying, they had it put to the test and they were put to shame by Mary because Mary isn't just suddenly thinking, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to pour this expensive perfume on Jesus. She knows what she's doing. She's understood what Jesus meant when he said he would be handed over and put to death. J.C. Ryle, he remarks on this passage that... <coughs> He remarks that Mary may well have been the best listener in all of the Gospels. And it shows. And because Mary sat at Jesus' feet, she alone seems to understand what the time requires. She knows what's about to happen. And so she serves Jesus appropriately. She comes with her most prized possession. It's an alabaster jar. This would be a, a stone jar with a round base and a slender neck with a cap on the top. And uh, it was a lot of perfume. We're told uh, in, in John's Gospel about a pound of perfume. So it's not a small jar and it's not a small amount of ointment. Now, not just in volume, but in value. The perfume cost 300 denarii. And you say, okay, well, what's that? That's one year's wage for the working man in Jesus' day. One year's wages. So it was no small amount. This was a great and lavish sacrifice on the part of Mary. In fact, nowhere in the Gospels do you see anybody do anything ex as extravagant as this for Christ. Nowhere. You see Christ doing all kinds of extravagant, lavish things, pouring Himself out for others. It's the only time you see someone pouring out something like this for Him. So she takes the jar, she breaks the neck of it, and pours it all. It's not a few drops, not half of it. She covers the Lord with this precious possession of hers. And in her example, 
we find a great encouragement to love and serve the Lord likewise. For one, by her example, we are compelled to hold nothing in reserve. This is a clear command, by the way, throughout Scripture. Seek the Lord with half of your heart. How many times do you read that? Zero. Seek the Lord with all of your heart. Or Deuteronomy, you are to love the Lord with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. All of it, not some of it or not half of it. All of it. There are warnings against serving the Lord in a divided way, like Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Or 1 Samuel 7, 3. So Samuel's confronting the people. He tells them, if you return to the Lord with all of your heart, what's that look like? Remove the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. He will deliver you. And there's a call here for undivided service to the Lord, a wholehearted service. There are warnings against double-mindedness all throughout the book of James. Throughout the prophets, we're warned against having divided hearts. Hearts that aren't fully committed to the Lord but are drawn away or, or hearts that maybe you have some secret chamber you've kept in reserve, right? So, Lord, I'll give you most of it, but I'm going to keep the keys to this one room. They belong to me, not to you. The Lord doesn't want that kind of worship. He doesn't want worshipers like that. It, it's, it's all or nothing. He doesn't want partial-hearted worship. He wants wholehearted worship. And you say, well, what's wholehearted worship look like? It looks like this. It's the determination that everything you are and everything you have and everything you do will be put to work to give glory to Him. You will do it according to His will for His glory in every arena of your life. Right? When it comes to your family... I am going to raise this family according to the Word of God, not according to the world. When it comes to your finances, I'm going to manage my finances according to the Word of God and not upon the wisdom I receive from the world. In your business, it's the same. In your relationships with other people, it's the same. When somebody wrongs you, you respond like Christ taught you and exampled for you. And so in your character and your behavior and in your thinking, all of it is done according to what pleases God. So, so you say to yourself, Lord God, I am going to do everything you call me to, and not just at church, and not just in the mornings, and not just here or there, and not when I feel like it, but all the time, with my thoughts and my words and my deeds and my possessions. That's what the undivided heart looks like. I was just reading this morning in, in 2 Kings. That's where I am in the Bible reading. And I'm, I'm reading about King Josiah. And it says, Never was there a king like him who loved the Lord God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength. And he goes through the whole land and he uses his kingly authority and power. He is on a, on a crusade to eradicate everything in the kingdom that displeases God and to install everything that his word tells him will please God. And not just in his kingdom. He goes into the kingdoms surrounding him. Everywhere that he could exert his influence, he did to turn people back to God. To put things away that displease him and to do everything that he knew the Lord required. You see this in the life of Josiah. As a man with an undivided heart. That's what it looks like. And that's what Mary had. She risked the ire of the disciples. She humbled herself. 
She gave her most prized possession because she loved the Lord. It's as simple as that. She loved the Lord more than her bottle of perfume, and so she gave her all. And even though everyone in the room thought it was a waste, they say it's a waste, she knew better. It's not a waste. Nothing given to or for Christ and His kingdom is ever wasted. It's not. It might look like a waste in the eyes of the world, but it doesn't look like a waste to Him. He remembers and He keeps account and He pays back in abundance. Oh, it's very possible for people to waste their lives. There are all kinds of people wasting their lives. and You can waste your strength. and You can do it all the time. People do it all the time. They waste their lives. They live for themselves and not for Christ. They try to get as much out of this life as they can. Much as you can. And you find out in the end, if that's you, if you know someone like this, they find out in the end it wastes it all. It's like, uh, it's like trying to hold water in your fist, clinging to this life. The tighter you cling, the less you have. And by clinging to life, clinging to what they have, they end up wasting it. They don't realize what the Lord said when He said, He who loves His life will lose it for Christ's sake. He who loses his life for Christ's sake finds it. You want to find life? Lose it for his sake. If you do that, it might look like a waste. It might look like a loss to the world around you. But I can promise you, I can promise you because the Word of God promises you that if you give anything to Him, your life, whatever it is, you will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. You will not be wasting it. No matter what your friends think or your family thinks or you might be tempted to think, nothing that you give to Him will ever, ever be wasted. And I, and I, and I got to say this because we often look at it and we weigh it in our minds. Well, if I follow Christ, this is going to happen. I can get a better outcome if I do this. It's not that. It, it's a waste. A little poem. Maybe some of you know it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Consider that when you're directing, deciding how you're going to live your day. One life, soon it's going to be gone. All that will remain is what's been done for Christ. Yeah, there's a little devotional by a man, Oswald Chambers, and the title, I think it captures what it means to live the unwasted life. And the title of the little devotional book is called My Utmost for His Highest. My Utmost for His Highest. I'm going to give everything I am. Why? To make Him look great. To exalt Him. How do you do that? Through obeying Him, praying, learning the Word, learning His ways, loving others, living sacrificially, knowing and doing His will, making Him known in the world. You make it the aim of your life to do that, and none of it will be a waste. If you're concerned about wasting your life, this is how you prevent that from happening. Now, I remember once, uh, I remember when I was, well, quite a while ago now, but uh, I acquiesced to the call to ministry. I had been resisting it for a while. And uh, I said, okay, Lord, I'll go. And 
And uh, I left pre-med and went to Bible college. And being from a small town, everyone knows what you're doing. It didn't bother me that much. It was just a fact. Everybody's going to know. And uh, I was back one day, one day on a break, bumped into one of my high school teachers in the grocery store, I believe it was, and uh, she asked what I was doing. She, she had heard, wanted to confirm and make sure, and uh, I said something along the lines of, yes, uh, I am going into the ministry and to a Bible college now. And then the teacher, uh, I remember she hung her head in disapproval and turned around and walked away, mumbling to herself, what a waste. What a waste. Now, she wasn't a believer, and I, I knew what she was saying wasn't true, because no amount of fortune or life or future given to Christ is ever going to be wasted. But she didn't see it. And the reason she didn't see it, it's the same reason the disciples don't see it, is because she did not know the value of Christ. She underestimated the value of a life given to Him. And a lot of people do. They don't understand the decisions that Christians make. They do not think it is wise to live in such a way or to give so much away. They don't see the point of sacrificing and working that into your life, that you live as a living sacrifice. They don't see the point of devotion to the Word or to prayer or to getting up early on Sunday to make it to church because they don't esteem the Lord or think He's worthy of those things. But the life that you live ought to preach this to them. When people see you living a life that's not living for the same things they are, it will have that effect. When they see you giving up things that they would never give up and see you sacrificing your rights and laying your life down for others, I'll be honest, most people won't see this and make much of it and they never will, but some will and they'll look and they'll see how you're living and they will say Christ is more precious to them than their money, than their reputation, than their advancement or their promotion or their comfort or any of the things I treasure he must be of a great value indeed. Some are going to say that when they see your life. Or at least they should. That's what should have happened when the disciples saw Mary's actions here as she poured out her most valuable possession to anoint the Lord. Seems like nobody in the whole room was pleased with what she did except for Him. And of all people, the disciples begin to grumble. They're not happy. They immediately object. That perfume could have been sold. Money given to the poor. What does she think she's doing? Pouring it out on Jesus. What a waste. What well, they call a waste, Jesus calls a beautiful thing. And we ought to take note because not everything we call wasteful is wasteful and not every attitude we think is righteous pleases God. That's the second point. Love is necessary for every good work. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the disciples here. I, I have to confess, when I read this, I was struck by the fact that they saw this happen. Uh, or if I had been there and seen this happen, if I'd been there in that upper room that day, I, I doubt my mind would have immediately thought of selling it and giving it to the poor. Probably wouldn't have been the first thing that came in between my ears. 
I might have thought nothing at all about it. I might have thought uh, maybe you should sell it and give it to a particular ministry or to a, a missions, but my mind would not have gone towards the poor. And maybe we ought to take note of that because I, I have a feeling I'm not alone in this. And if the disciples fell into the ditch of charity, we fall into sometimes the other side, whatever that other side is. But the one thing to credit to them is they took Jesus' commands for the poor to heart. And when they saw the ointment flowing down his face and beard and dripping onto the floor, they saw loaves of bread and fish that could be feeding starving and hungry children. Their outburst was unjustified, but far from unrighteous. Now one might be tempted at this point to make the argument that doing something for Christ is more important than doing something for the needy. But that puts us into a bit of a conflict because prior to this, Jesus said, if anyone receives someone in my name, he receives me. Gives a cup of cold water to someone in my name, he will in no way lose his reward. Kindness to the least of these is kindness to Christ. This, however, is a special case. This was the last time Mary would have an opportunity to do something like this for Jesus. He makes this clear when he tells them, you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me, Jesus says. Elsewhere he tells us he'll never leave us or forsake us. Here he says, you won't always have me with you. He means you won't always have me with you in this physical, material way. He will soon depart and go to be with the Father, and though He will be with them in spirit, they will see Him no more. It's the last time an expensive gift could be poured out on Him, and therefore it is appropriate. Even though in most circumstances it would be best to sell it and give the money to the poor, this isn't one of those circumstances. But the point in this verse is not caring for the poor. The point in this verse is about love for Christ. And what is tragically obvious is these disciples, these 12 men closest to Jesus, they did not understand what they should have understood. And so they did not esteem the Lord as they ought to. The problem that they had was the same as the teacher of mine. They don't understand how valuable Christ is, and so the thought of a valuable gift being poured out on Him strikes their minds as a waste. Otherwise, they would have recognized what Mary was doing, and they would have given thanks for it. And this passage makes clear that the most important thing for a Christian, more important than caring for the poor, is to love the Lord. That's the lesson. All endeavors, all Christian endeavors, good things and godly things, must be done with the priority and the focus on loving Christ. If that's not there, then all of those good desires, you want to provide for others, you want to do this, if there's no love for Christ, they'll be misguided. And they will not actually please the Lord, just as was the case here with the disciples. So feed the poor all you want and do as many good deeds as you can, but never without love for Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I give all uh, that I have to the poor, if I give my body to be burned but have no love, I am nothing. Sacrifice is nothing and selflessness is nothing if there's no aim to please Him. That has no lasting value. It's hardly any earthly value. Love for Christ 
is necessary for any good work to actually be considered good. There are two reasons for this. I used to wonder, maybe you have too, but I, I used to wonder, how can God, who is perfect, call the works of believers good works? How can He reward them and call them good works when I know that it's really not a good work. I've tried to do the best that I, I could, but there's still sin there. You ever wondered that? The best, how the, 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 the best, most selfless action you've ever taken, it still has some sliver, at least, of sin in it. Probably more, and especially in the heart. The motivations aren't perfect. Sin pollutes the good work that we do. It's like a drop of poison in a cup. How can God look at those good works and, solve them and say they're good? Because for God to call a work good, even the motivations must be perfect. So that's the problem that I wrestled with, and maybe you too. How can my attempted good works, which are all shot through with sin, how can they be called good by God? How can He accept them and reward them? Well, for one, it's only Christians that this is true for. It's not true for everyone. Only Christians can have good deeds before God. And listen, this is not because their deeds are better or because they're of a higher quality. That's not why at all. No, the reason why our good works, Christians' good works, can be called good by God is because all of the sin that polluted and stained and tarnished them was dealt with and cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ. Those sinful motivations, Christ, when He atoned for your sin, it included those. Your good works are like gold ore mined out of the earth, and Christ is the furnace. When you present good works before the Lord, He takes it and puts it into that furnace and refines it. And He refines it again until all of the rock is melted and the pollutants are burned up and the dross is removed and you're left with something pure and perfect. That's what Christ does for the good works of His children. So all of the sin, if you're a Christian, all of the sin that permeated your deeds was paid for and all that remains is the good portion of your motive and actions. So that now the Lord can truly accept it and truly reward it. That, that's one of the reasons why only Christians can do good works before God. That's why love is necessary. Here's another. The other. And it has to do with whether a good work is done with a mind to please the Lord. Because apart from being a believer, being cleansed by the blood of Christ... Apart from having a heart aimed at honoring Him, all of our good works become filthy rags. It's Isaiah 64, 6. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Why? Why is a good deed like a filthy rag? Because if a good deed is done without a heart and a mind and an aim to please the Lord, it becomes idolatry. Good works not done for the glory of God, are idolatry. Let me give you an example. Imagine there's somebody here in Fredericton who is very sick. There's only one person in the whole world who can make the cure, lives over in Moncton, and the cure is very expensive. He hears about the sickness of his enemy, 
goes, sells half of his possessions to buy the materials necessary to make this cure, concocts it, and then carries it by foot all the way to Fredericton because there's a snowstorm. At great cost to himself, this, 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 this enemy of his comes and brings a medicine to his nemesis, and he drinks it, and he gets better. This man is an atheist. He does not believe in the Lord God. Is this a good work in God's sight? What he's just done. Sold half of his possessions at great cost and risk to himself. Crossed a hundred miles. Brought him some medicine. Is it a good work in the sight of God? Absolutely not. It's sin and it's idolatry. And if you want to prove it, just ask our good atheist why he did what he did. What will he answer? Well, it was the right thing to do. Or, well, I wanted to be a good person. Or, well, that's just who I am. And you know what he becomes in that moment? He becomes a thief. Because all of the glory of that sac a sacrifice he could not have made had God not, God not enabled him, all of the glory that should have been given to God... He claimed it for himself. And in doing so, he became a thief of the glory of God. That's why, that's what the good works of men accomplish outside of faith. They steal his glory. This is why uh, Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. Impossible to please him cannot do something that pleases God if it's not done in faith, aimed at Him for His glory. So you must know and love the Lord God for any good deed to truly be considered good. And that's the end of the supper. In verse 13, Jesus honors Mary's gift. In John's Gospel, which was written much later, you actually see the fulfillment of these words spoken to Mary. He says, wherever the Gospel goes, she'll be heard. Well, when John and he gets to uh, chapter 11 and talks about Jesus going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he says, Lazarus, and then in parenthesis, the brother of Mary who anointed him, close parenthesis, so he's identifying Lazarus. This is in God, John's Gospel before John tells us of Mary anointing Jesus. So when, he, when he's writing his gospel to the churches, wherever it was he wrote it to, it's expected that everybody in the first century understood who this woman was. What you see him say to her in chapter 13 is fulfilled before even a hundred years go by. All of the church recognized it. All of the church knew what she'd done. But there's somebody else that all of the church recognized someone who is in sharp contrast to Mary. And you see him in verses 14 through 16. And this lavish, prodigal love that Mary showered on Jesus, this is the event that paves the way for Jesus' betrayal. See, all the disciples were annoyed, but for Judas, it was too much. In every gospel, Judas going to, the, going to the leaders to betray Christ comes after he sees this happening. The disciples were annoyed. Judas couldn't handle it. Judas loved money. We're told elsewhere, Judas 
was a thief. Judas was a treasurer, and he would steal from the money bag. And this night, when he saw 300 denarii being poured out on Jesus and not poured into his pockets, it was more than he could take. This was the last straw. And it was this anointing that sent Judas into the arms of Christ's enemies. And he went to them, and he joined their plight to expedite their plot to crucify Christ. He said, you're worried about the crowds? I'll show you where there's no crowds, and I'll betray him to you. What will you give me? Judas is an amazing character in Scripture. Spends three years with Jesus. Three full years with Christ. 24-7. Sees the miracles. Performs some of the miracles himself. He asks Jesus questions. He hears answers. <coughs> he hears the teach. The teaching of Christ. I mean, you imagine if you could spend one day with Christ, how your life would be different. Judas spends three years and betrays him. Why? How can he do it? What? You almost have to speculate a little bit. Well, not really because it's quite clear. Why does Judas do this? Judas thought the following Christ would give him the world. Give him money and wealth and power. Money especially. And when he realizes it's not going to happen, when Judas realized that Jesus is not going to make him rich, he's done with Jesus. And he throws him under the bus for 30 silver coins. It's a price paid for a slave that's been gored by an ox. I titled this point, The Thorns of Betrayal. And if you wonder, well, why thorns? That's because this is exactly what Jesus warns about in the parable of the sower back in Matthew 13. A, pair, a farmer is sowing seed. Some seed lands on the path and is eaten by the birds. Some lands in shallow soil, springs up, and dies. Some seed, the fourth seed, lands in good soil, and it produces a crop. But the third seed lands among thorns. And the wheat grows up with the thorns for a while, in this case, for three years before the thorns, which are the deceitfulness of riches and the love of the world, they reach out and they strangle the wheat. Judas is strangled by the deceitfulness of wealth and the love of the world. He's, he's so captivated by them that he would sell out the Savior for 30 silver coins. He's the complete opposite of Mary. Mary was undivided. Mary gave everything to Christ. Judas was divided, and he sold Christ for a pittance. Mary loved the Lord, and Judas betrayed Him. Mary was fixed on eternity and her mind on Christ, and Judas was worldly, and his mind was fixed on what he could squeeze out of Him. That night, he realized, this Christianity business, it's not everything I thought it was cracked up to be. He wanted to be rich. He wanted to reign. He wanted rings on his fingers. When he realized he wasn't going to get it, he determined to do whatever it would take. If he wouldn't get it from Christ, he would get it by selling Christ. What a tremendous danger there is for those who are like Judas. No, no one has his name, but many have his heart. And they come to Christ, and they walk with him for a while. But the heart's always divided and aimed towards the world, riches, something else. Often, very, the very reason why people come to Christ 
It isn't for Him. They come so they can acquire more of the world. Some deviant reason that can't be numbered. Many come for wealth. You see them on TV all the time. They make a big show. They have their jets and they have their dollars and that's all they're going to have. They've sold the message of Christ for plain. They've been deceived. They've traded that which was of infinite value, value for things that one day will be of no value at all. Many people follow after them for the same reasons. Some people come because they want acceptance. You know, when I was growing up and going to youth groups, over and over again I would hear testimonies and people would say, well, I, I came to the Lord because He loves me just as I, I am and I don't have to change a thing. And they would go on to live wild, wicked lives, no repentance. Or they, they'd come and they'd say, well, I, I was looking for this or that and I find it in Jesus. But as soon as they find a place in Scripture that confronts them, Oh, you're telling me I, you're telling me I can't be a Christian and continue on in, in this sin. You're telling me I can't be a Christian and continue living this life that I love. Oh, I didn't know that, and they're gone, or they get angry and become vicious. You see it over and over again. There are all kinds of reasons why people come. I mean, some people came to Jesus, no doubt, because they thought this Christianity business, this is going to be a real... This is one of the themes you see throughout the Gospel. People come to Jesus, they flock to Him. Why? Because they think He's going to overthrow the Romans, drive them out of the land, set up their own, their own Jewish kingdom. And they find out that's not what this is about. They're gone. They don't serve Christ. They want Christ to serve them. When they realize their agenda and His agenda diverge, this Christianity, not what they thought it was going to be, they're done. It's not going to give them what they want. It's not going to help them to accomplish their goals. It might actually cost them something. They're out. Like Judas. Judas wanted money. He's not going to get it from religion. And so he turns to treachery. People like this want nothing more to do with Christianity. It was a means to their end. Christ was a means to their end. And if they can't get it by following it, Him, they'll get it by betraying Him and handing Him over. Can't get what they want by obeying His Word, they'll get it by flouting His Word. That's how it works when you have a divided heart. Eventually you do what Judas did. You sell out God for whatever idea or pursuit has captured your heart. And it's possible to be in the church a long time. Right? Judas was like this, and he was with Christ for three years. And when J Jesus says, someone's going to betray me, they didn't immediately all point to Judas. He fit in. If that's you here this afternoon, and your heart is divided, you need to reconsider what you're here for. You need to reconsider for your own good. Because if that's you, you do not value or understand Christ and the riches of His kingdom or how worthy He is to be honored and esteemed and loved. 
You, you know what it's like? Let me tell you what it's like. A couple of years ago, there was a guy at a, at a, at a, at a, at a yard sale. And he found a $30 bowl at this yard sale. A very nice bowl. And he, he told the owner, they asked 30 he said, I'll give you $5 more for it. And the owner said, $5, $35 for a bowl. That's great. And the owner was happy to sell the bowl for $5 more than, than she thought she would sell it for. She was happy for a little while until she turned on the evening news and found out that some local woman at a yard sale sold for $35 a 1,000-year-old Ming uh, uh, vase from the Ming dynasty that was worth $700,000. You want to talk about waste? That was a waste. When you come to Christ for any reason other than Christ, it's just like that. You come and, and this $700,000 has nothing compared to Him. Infinite value of Christ. And you want this or that or whatever it could be. It's a waste when people come to the church, come to hear about Christ, see Christ, have Him preached, and value Him at $30 instead of the infinite treasure that He is. That's a waste. And anyone who does that, they waste it all. They waste their soul. They waste everything. If you don't, you want to know what a wasted life is like, it's a life that doesn't value Christ. Mary didn't waste a thing because she valued him. Judas didn't. And he went out and hanged himself and it cost him everything. And this afternoon, just ask yourself honestly, what value do you place on Christ? What value? How do you esteem him? Is he only so good to you as he longs to, as, as he helps to carry out the plan of yours? Is he worthy of it all? Value Christ rightly, or it'll cost you everything. Value him rightly, and there is the world and eternity to gain. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would get glory for yourself and for your son through my stammering foolishness, God, please. You are worthy of far more than anything that was given to you this afternoon. Lord, words all come short. Please, Lord, write your, write your worth on our hearts that though we can't understand it with our ears, we would understand it in our souls. That, Lord, we would know how precious You are and that it would change our lives forever. That we have a treasure in heaven worth all the gold and wealth of this world combined. Help us, Lord, to esteem Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.